Okay, Matt, thank you for joining us. Um, could you just introduce yourself to everyone who's listening who may not know who you are? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on, Ian. So my name's Matt Regan. I am a professor, an assistant professor um, of biology in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Montreal, or l'Université de Montréal, as we say around here. And so my research focuses on, um, I'm an animal physiologist, and uh, the broad scope of my research program looks at the mechanisms that certain specialized yet diverse animals use to induce and sustain states of depressed metabolism, uh, uh, which they can then recover from. Um, an example being probably the most well-known example being hibernating mammals. But I also work, and I do work with hibernating mammals, but I also work with other animals that are capable of this metabolic feat, such as um, fishes, for example, that can survive prolonged periods with little to no oxygen. They, they do something similar to the hibernating mammals to allow them to, sur to survive that. Yeah, so I first came across you because you had been a part of this research paper that went out and it got like a lot of attention, I think, as far as like most research papers don't really get that much attention. And there's articles going around the internet and I was fascinated by it to some degree because when I looked at it, I was kind of like, this might be like the mortar, like the groundwork, like foundations for like homeostasis and like space travel. But uh, it was also interesting because, if, uh, correct me anywhere I'm wrong here too, because I'm not like a professional, but um, uh, urea nitrogen salvage theory, it kind of solidified that theory in a way, right? Yeah, well, it showed that it is a process that is definitely occurring in hibernating mammals. It is known, it's a process that has been known for many years to uh, be active in other animals, particularly animals that have quite different gastrointestinal, like the architecture of their of their gastrointestinal systems. So, yeah. for example, cows, like animals that belong to a group called the ruminants, which have quite different uh, architectures to their GI tracts than than the hibernating squirrels that we work with, which are similar GI tracts to what we have uh humans have yeah and gi tracts are quite a complex thing too they're like a symphony of like different bacteria and all this other are. stuff right yeah yeah they are different different uh different tissues different organs all contributing to the same physiological system and then of course you have even different different kingdoms of life because you have cells from the host themselves of course that make up the tissues but then you also have this this hugely complex environment of uh, microbial life mainly bacteria but also um, other microbial groups as well yeah um so when you speculate about the futures of where this research is going to lead wh where do you see it going like wh what are your hopes for it what are your realistic like in the near future what are the realistic possibilities you see going forward with it and you know stuff like that yeah, it's a good question. So this is uh this this first this first study that that we've just published here is I think like the first it's a proof of principle. Basically it's there's this it, it tested this hypothesis that had been floating around in the the hibernation 
research community for like almost 30 years. Yeah. And for various reasons, we were able, uh, you know, over the past few years to go in, it was about three years into making the study. And we were able to go in and use techniques that are sort of have become, uh, have entered our realm as har- uh, uh, hibernation researchers. By that, I mean, have become available enough, user-friendly enough and, and cheap enough that allow, um, you know, more labs around the world to, to use. And so we were able to show, like we were able to demonstrate clear evidence that this process of urea nitrogen salvage, which we can talk about for your listeners, like what the hell this thing is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we were able to show that, yeah, look, it is happening in these hibernators. And presumably, uh, based on the results we saw, it is allowing, it is benefiting them. It is um, what we think it's, it's allowing them to emerge from the hibernation season into the spring active season when they mate, it allows them to emerge in good shape. And so this was basically a proof of concept uh, uh, study. So we're at that very early stage. And if you think of, you know, like a lot of, uh, there's what's sometimes called the discovery pipeline in science, which is a spectrum ranging from say, on one side you have where this study is, which is elucidating shining a light on some phenomenon in the natural universe. In this case, it was animal physiology and symbiosis between an animal and it's got microbes, but it could be, you know, any realm of the natural sciences. Uh, And then at the other end of that spectrum on the discovery pipeline, you have the application. And sometimes, you know, uh, oftentimes, I would guess, a lot of discoveries do not end up proving to be fruitful or useful to say humans or society in, at, at in the time, ways. maybe at, at the time, certainly at the time. Yeah, definitely at the time. I would guess that a lot of what become ubiquitous pieces of technology, for example, were not, at, were not, were, were rarely uh, glimpsed by the people who were the discoverers yeah. of the natural phenomenon. It played off something else and it went back and found it later to be like, oh, this could be useful for this. Exactly. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's, you know, that could, I think that that's very interesting. It's a very interesting idea. There's very neat examples of this throughout, you know, modern history. And uh, I think what's, what's neat about it is it really, I think it requires a different type of, sometimes, depending on the phenomenon question and the eventual technology, it requires a different person or a different thought process to sort of make the link. So the person who's maybe adept at discovering the natural phenomenon may not have, you know, their their mode of thinking about things may not be uh, as amenable to the development or the application or translation of this mechanism to some some aspect of the human existence, for example, that may be benefited from it. So it requires the input of different people coming at it from different perspectives. And that I is think true. That yeah. You can get tunnel really... vision, right? With certain people, certain frames of thought. Exactly. Need an and... out of the box thinker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes I think out of the box thinkers are the ones who are seem like, you know, that's what maybe is the desirable uh, or seen as like sort of, you know, like the Elon Musk of the world, like the desirable way to approach things. Yeah. But the fact is science requires different, science is a, is a huge endeavor and it requires detail focused people who go super deep on, you know, for example, like a, like a single, single ion pump 
in a cell membrane and they devote their career to studying that and the different subunits that allow it to function. Yeah. And that's like a key part and it's a tedious part that a lot of people aren't going to have much interest in. Exactly. There's going to be a lot, but there's a lot of people that depend on that too for their um, research and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then sort of bring it back in here to Yuri and Hydrogen Salvage to get around to answering your question. I think that because we're at this early phase, what is going to be required? Oh, you cut out for a sec there. Oh, you have me? Yeah, you sound distant though for some reason. Okay, hold on there. Did it die? How are you? Is yeah, this the... yeah, it's back. It's back? Okay. Yeah. But uh just I just want to speak for a second so that the listeners know. So nitrogen salvage basically you have the animals that hibernate like bears and stuff like that squirrels and if we were to try to do the same thing after like a few days our muscle mass would atrophy we would you know we need to work out constantly we need to be using our muscles if you don't if we don't use them we lose them these animals can go for like months at a time days weeks and not lose any muscle mass so the idea was like how can these mammals you know you know go to sleep and rest for long periods of time and uh not experience atrophy and so this was the nitrogen salvage theory that some component of their body is salvaging nitrogen from other parts of their body so in this case it's like their urine or uh you know pee to do that so yeah exactly and that's uh uh what's also um leading to you know the 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 possibility, just looking at these animals and what they do over the winter, it's partly that they're completely inactive. The species we work with is inactive for about six months because their hibernation season lasts about six months. Uh, but they're also not eating during that time. So they're not taking in any new nu- uh, nutrients, which is really fascinating because mm-hmm. that combination of inactivity plus no new nutrients coming uh, into the system, into the animal, uh, would in theory lead to muscle wasting because as the body starts to break itself, um, down. Break, break itself down to, 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 you know, convert its own materials into energy so as to sustain life. Yeah. To keep um, the vitals going. Exactly. And so these animals, uh, they avoid that. And that's been known for uh, a long time. It's one of these, one of the really, it's kind of the point of hibernation, you know, as a, as an adaptive mechanism, it allows these animals to, to go, uh, throughout a season of the year where there is little to no food available to them. Um, it allows them to, to survive that and emerge on the other side. Yeah. So what some of these articles were talking about in regards to like discovering this, it's like, how could we take that feature from certain mammals and then apply it to humans? And the benefit to this would be like when we think of space travel and the long endeavors it will take to get to certain places is maybe this will help us achieve hibernating or like a homeostasis state of being where, you know, we we could make it like far distances without needing like a lot of sustenance. And I don't know when I think about it, I think of maybe like gene editing through CRISPR or I don't know, there's the some future technology that's not made yet maybe even something as simple as an injection in the future yeah yeah so i think there's a there's a couple of applications here of hibernation to to uh human space flight and 
so the one you're talking about there is lowering the metabolic rate of crew members, astronauts, cosmonauts, whoever, uh, mm. so as to reduce the requirement for consumables, um, you know, food, water, oxygen, reduce the rate at which CO2 is produced. That reduces up mass, like the, the mass of the craft as it leaves Earth, which is a significant limiter um, yeah. to, uh, to spaceflight. Uh, there's also some biological, it would also, in theory, reducing metabolism in a highly regulated fashion, similar to hibernators as, as they do throughout the winter time. It would uh, simultaneously mitigate some of the biological challenges that come with long duration uh, spaceflight in deep space in particular in the full radiation environment um, outside Earth's Van Allen belts because uh, one is... There is some uh, evidence from the 60s and 70s in studies that were actually funded by NASA that show that hibernating mammals, in fact, the same species that we work with, the 13-line ground squirrel, um, they're highly resistant to ionizing radiation. That's interesting. Yeah, you can take the same species and you can irradiate them while they're in torpor, which is the name of this metabolically depressed state that they spend most of the hibernation season in. If you blast them with radiation while they're in torpor, their survival rates are significantly better than if you were to blast the same species while they're in the summertime and at their normal metabolic rate. So there appears to be some intrinsic element to torpor or a reduced rate of metabolism that is protective uh, when it comes to ionizing radiation. Do do we know why yet or no? It's, It's not really known why there are a few hypotheses out there about why it may be. It may be related to temperature, so reduction in temperature. Um, When uh, uh, a hibernator induces this torpid state, their body temperature falls from what is in the summertime 37 degrees, just like us, and it will fall to pretty much the ambient temperature of their surroundings, so their their little hibernation burrow, their hibernaculum, which is about five degrees Celsius. They keep it slightly above that, maybe six, six and a half degrees. Amazing. Um, so their body, their, if, if you pick one up. You cut again, you cut again. Is this okay? Do you yeah, got me? You're back. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they're cold because the, the, the reason there is that the heat that gets them up to 37 degrees in the, wind, in the, in the summer, which is the same, same explanation for why we're at 37 degrees, is their rates of metabolism. So the biochemical me- metabolism is defined as just the, the totality of all the chemical reactions occurring in the organism at a given point in time. And all of those chemical reactions are to some degree or other, uh, so to speak, um, inefficient. And as a, as a byproduct, they produce heat. And so endothermic animals that maintain their body temperatures at, uh, you know, high 30s, low 40s, um, they've been able to co-opt this inefficiency so as to maintain their body temperature at that high level and maintain some element of, of, of uh, stability uh, for their biochemical reactions that occur in their cells. And in contrast, an animal like a, a fish or an amphibian or a reptile, 
for the most part, there are exceptions to these, um, but for the most part, these animals, uh, their body temperature tracks pretty much identically the temperature of their surrounding environment. Um, and so as a result, their chemical reactions, you know, proceed at lower or faster rates depending on the temperature of the environment that they find themselves in. And so uh, the, the hibernating animal, by lowering its metabolic rates, body temperature plummets, and there is some evidence to uh, suggest that it is this low temperature um, that has a protective effect on certain elements of, uh, of damage to certain molecules like DNA in the cell when it comes to ionizing radiation. It's, it's, all... it's amazing how that plays into it. Like another aspect of space travel, though, it's almost like we're you're sort of deciphering like something that's hitting in, in like DNA that kind of assists us in like space travel possibly in the distant future right i don't know it, it, it sort of seems like we're solving a puzzle i don't know yeah. sometimes it feels that way yeah so uh i mean that's kind of how i that's how i see science in general yeah. it's sort of like it's a puzzle like when i you know if one empties a, a puzzle onto a table they know that all the elements are there to to put it together and and, and understand whatever the f picture is or whatever on I'm, fasc I'm fascinated by DNA because it's basically a giant puzzle. It's both a computer and a massive storage system. And in that it contains basically every, every living thing on earth is like in DNA. And the, it can basically use that to like evolve, like it can process that information into whatever it needs necessary. And in a way, to me, it kind of seems like nanotechnology in a way, or like even smaller, where, you know, like if we were to build a life form, like something like nanotech that we wanted to like use to like seed the universe or monitor the universe, it's like, at the, like, would the most pinnacle of technology, would it be like something similar to DNA? Because like we could send it anywhere in the universe and if it found a suitable environment over time it could adapt and evolve to that environment possibly i don't know yeah well i mean that is uh the idea of like evolution by natural selection it's a phenomenon that is it it would likely play out if there are certain elements involved uh then it's it's sort of uh an automatic uh, consequence. So, uh, uh, for example, if if traits, if certain traits are are um, uh, heritable, that is passed on from one generation to the next, and if certain numbers of those traits are more likely to lead to survival and or success with reproduction, then the result is that evolution. The evolution of the species or whatever the the, the, the the entity is, the DNA containing entity, it will evolve via natural selection in the same process or via the same process that we've seen organisms here on Earth yeah. evolve over the past few billion years. And um, I mean, the the uh, the uh, the process of of. Uh, the way that DNA is modified is a more or less, for the most part, a random process where you have 
mutations that occur. Um, most of these uh, mutations are of little to no consequence. Some of them are detrimental and actually lead to decreased rates of survival and or reproduction. And then the ultimate, the ultimate uh, fate of those tends to be um, because of natural selection, they get weeded out and are diminished um, over time in the, in the population. And then another subset of those will actually benefit uh, survival or reproduction. And then so gradually over time, those will become more present in the population. Um, so there is an element of chance, which is the initial mutation, uh, which can be positive, negative, or neutral. And then there's the more um, directed form or uh, what's, not, what's not chance about the process, which is the way that selection acts on it um, and leads to its either eventual uh, increase in prevalence in the population or its weeding out and loss from the population. What, what do you think of things like, I think it's divergent evolution, where you have an animal that's unrelated, but it evolves to look similarly to something else to fill like a ecological niche. So for example, in North America, we have raccoons. And then I guess like in uh, Asia, they have um, the red panda. They, they look very similar. They both look, you know, sort of like raccoon-like and... The idea, I guess, is that they both, they're not the same species and they're not, I don't even think they're closely related, but they do look very similar. And they think that that's divergent evolution, if, if I'm not mistaken, sorry if I'm getting that wrong, but it's like, you know, they're, and they just sort of evolved over time to fulfill that similar ecological niches. Is that sort of like, to me, that almost seems like a blueprint for like DNA or like evolution where certain conditions, like when exposed to certain conditions or criteria in their environment, it will just develop like a specific or certain way. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's convergent evolution. Oh, convergent, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, I agree that that is a, that's a, that's a, that's a phenomenon that's not gone on unnoticed by biologists because it's, 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 it's a potentially useful system with which to study the mechanisms that allow survival in certain environments. So if you have two, like you say, unrelated species that have evolved similar traits, whether they're physical, you know, traits related to their physical appearance or traits related to some physiological or biochemical process within their bodies or within their cells, if there is some convergence on the same solution to the same problem, then it, it is a neat example of how evolution works and how it, it, it kind of cuts away over t given enough time, it sort of converges on a similar solution to a similar problem. Uh, and what I find neat about this is, and what's kind of uh, um, uh, at the heart of the, uh, where I'm taking my research program, is you can, I think it allows someone to glimpse what are the real, the, the fundamental principles underlying a phenomenon in question. So for example, yeah. I'm interested in metabolic depression, which is like, uh, as I stated earlier, this, uh, this um, ability of animals to, in a very regulated fashion, reduce their metabolic rates by significant degrees and, uh, and then recover and then revive themselves from those states. And it prolongs their, um, their survival in environments that would otherwise be inhospitable. 
and there are, like I said, lots of, there are, these are specialized animals that do this. Most animals cannot do this, but there are many examples of animals that can do it, and they are not necessarily related to one another. And so what I'd like to do if, um, with my research program is study these different, relatively unrelated or distantly related groups of animals that employ the same strategy of metabolic depression and then try and isolate what are the common features or what are the common mechanisms that are present in these different groups. Because if we can understand what those are, what those naturally evolved common mechanisms are, then it's probable that they are critical to the safe or effective use of this particular trait of metabolic depression. And I think that if an ultimate goal is to translate this, this ability to depress metabolism in this way, uh, then I think that a pretty solid understanding of what these fundamental critical components are that have independently evolved um, separately from one another but are present in these different groups, I think that's going to be important information because it's probably going to be uh, traits or phenomena that will need to be translated in the process of translating the entire phenotype or the entire trait of metabolic depression to animals that don't naturally induce these states or haven't naturally evolved an ability to induce these states. So it's a very, your example of convergent evolution is, a, it's not only really interesting for the reasons you said, it's actually a really powerful and useful tool when it comes to understanding the, 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 the phenomenon question at its basic or first principles level. Um, I wanted to talk about tardigrades a little bit because, uh, they have this pretty unique ability where they can basically shut down all their, like metabolic functions and they can come back from it probably more so than any other species. And they can do that through, um, you know, extreme environments as well. So I was doing some reading and I came across like uh, some more articles and stuff like that. And there's some speculation that they might be able to facilitate space flight on what's called a wafer. And basically what a wafer is, I don't know if you know, but for the listeners, it's a piece of like substrate. It's very light. It's just like a disc. It's small. It's made basically to be able to be propelled on like photonic energy or light. So it can be propelled using a laser. Uh, and by using that kind of as a propulsion system you can actually get to about in theory you can get to about 20 to 30 percent the speed of light which is probably faster than anything else we could manage especially relying on traditional fuels even like nuclear i don't think we could get that fast so they estimate that in theory it would probably take 20 to 30 years to get to the nearest star system like our closest star Proxima Centauri, I think that's what it is. And when they realized they could get up to like a gram of weight onto like this piece of substrate, one of the potential candidates for putting putting something on that piece of substrate was um, a tardigrade. And they thought, you know, if it can survive pretty harsh conditions, it can go into like a state of homeostasis. It seems to be like this really good candidate. And then there's certain ideas and ways of tracking its kind of like biological functions once it reaches that um, solar system. 
I was wondering if you had any thoughts or anything on that, or I don't know if you could speak to it. Yeah, you have quite. I love talking tardigrades. <laughs> uh, but tardigrades. So yeah. So this is. I mean, tardigrades. I think there is. I think they have successfully survived in the vacuum of space. So they have this ability, like you. Oh yes. The other thing I wanted to talk to you was is homeostasis. So let's return to those two things: DNA and then your use. The, the way you're using the term homeostasis, which is not wrong, but we'll we'll refine it a little bit in a way okay. that I think you'll find interesting. So tardigrades do have this incredible ability to like um, uh, enter states of metabolic depression as a result of different factors of their environment. So. Basically, when any factor, when any essential abiotic factor of the environment disappears, whether it's oxygen or heat or water or food, they have an ability to enter this, uh, this pronounced state of metabolic depression. And just for context, the, the hibernating mammals I work with, they can depress their metabolism by uh, about 99% in the hibernation season relative to their normal summertime rates of metabolism, which is incredible. Like humans, we can depress ours during like slow wave sleep, for example, maybe by uh, 10 to 15%. So 99% is incredible. Tardigrades, they can reduce it by to 99.99%. So like they're essentially turning themselves off. Yeah. Uh, and they enter states, like for example, I think the most pronounced state is when water disappears and they can enter a state, what's called anhydrobiosis. That's the, the name that's given to this metabolic state where they can stay almost indefinitely. And then once, in this case, water returns to their environment, they will rehydrate relatively quickly and then go about life uh, as if, you know, as if nothing happened, which is really remarkable and an incredible survival trick. And you can see why natural selection may have selected for that over, over the last uh, few hundred million years. Now, in terms of sending them on, so another thing is I think that, they, that this ability to enter these states um, is, uh, uh, underlies their, their ability to have survived in the vacuum of space for some period of time, which you know most animals, especially us, we, it's yeah. impossible because it's just such a harsh environment in so many ways. Um, so for that reason, I think that if we were to put, if we were to strap, you know, uh, a living organism, an animal to a, um, to a wafer or to any spacecraft, then especially if there was no enclosed environment for them to, to, uh, to be within like a habitat, then a tardigrade would be one of our only options, not just a good option, but one of our only options because most animals or most organisms would not survive that environment. Now, in terms of why we would do that, so, uh, you know, sending, sending, sending tardigrades to another star system, like outside our solar system to another star in, in, the, in the Milky Way galaxy, um, without without the, 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 uh, the intention to return them to Earth, which was, would take forever, you know, but let's just assume that the propulsion technology was sufficient where that could be done. Um, yeah, I don't know why, I guess, uh, I'm not sure why one would do that. In fact, I would worry a little bit <laughs> that it would be unethical to do it because if for some reason or other, be it, 
a planned reason or an accidental reason, the, the, uh, the wafer or the spacecraft um, was drawn into a gravitational field for some planet and actually was drawn down onto the planet's surface. And then the tardigrades survived re-entry, which is possible for these animals, um, and then revived if the conditions were sufficient for them on that planet, then that's an ethical, that's a huge ethical uh, yeah, because you don't know question. what kind of you don't know what kind of terror they're going to bring upon that planet. They might be like the alien invaders of that planet. Exactly. Yeah, and um, you know there is this idea of uh, of uh, what's it? Is it targeted panspermia? It's panspermia, yeah. but one that is 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 not accidental or or or, or the result of natural phenomena. So that's like what, a, and that's what that would kind of be. Exactly. Yeah, and I don't. You know, that's a that's a. Um, to be honest, I haven't I haven't uh, dwelled too deeply on that idea uh, on the ethics of it, but I do know that it is an ethical. It is an there there are some deep ethical considerations there that I think would need to be uh, discussed by you know a multidisciplinary yeah. group of people before we would engage in that. Or I Musk. know when 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 Musk when the, in that if you remember you probably remember that first Falcon Heavy launch where. Uh, they released Musk's uh, uh, Tesla Roadster. Yeah, his car. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think that was sterilized. I don't think that they had sterilized the vehicle. And now it's on some like billion year elliptical, elliptical orbit around the sun. And I remember at the time just reading on Reddit or wherever, some people who were, who brought this up and, you know, uh, that maybe that wasn't an, a, a great ethical decision to do that. I mean, it was it was it was pretty it was pretty emotional <laughs> to see when the fairing opened and that thing flowed out, yeah. especially because they were playing Bowie in the live feed and stuff. But um, <laughs> I don't think it, it'll end up on like a like a planet with life, though. So it's I don't. Well, know. what if it ends up on a planet? So what if it ends up on? Let's just assume there were tar there. There were tardigrades along yeah. for the ride, and sure. they and it does end up on, say, Mars, okay? Yep. And say, you know, there's been considerable effort since the 70s to investigate whether life either currently exists or has existed at some point on Mars. Now, what if the—this is, is just a question. Uh, it's not based on my opinion, but just an interesting discussion. What if that Tesla Roadster accidentally— seeded Mars with life, whether they were tardigrades or some other microorganism on a non-sterilized Tesla Roadster. Even if there is no life on Mars currently, again, there's a Bowie reference in there too. I think they're planning on messing up Mars as much as they can anyway, so I don't know if they... <laughs> I don't... Yeah, it'll, it'll just get the terraform, the terraform going yeah. earlier than planned. <laughs> I, I, saw, I saw an article the other day where it was like, one of the rovers like took a still image shot of some of the trash it left behind. I'm like, well, well, we already littered the planet. Good job. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. So I don't know. Um, and if they want to colonize it, I mean, we're bringing our whole, you know, all the bacteria on us with us. So I don't and know. I don't. I guess that is an ethical debate. I guess they haven't even thought of that. They jumped the gun on it. Well, the thing. So the thing. Like one of the things I like about. Um, Elon Musk and about and about SpaceX and you know their 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 mission statement it's so it's so lot like for a mission statement you know the 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 goal to colonize to make humans uh multiplanetary it's just almost like it's almost unbelievable that a company 
that has achieved the success in a, in a relatively conventional way that SpaceX has, has a mission statement like that. That's still their mission statement. I think that's incredible. I think a lot of people find that incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. It's something to inspire to. Like people have been looking up to the stars since like the beginning of time and just dreaming. And like from that, we've built stru like massive structures, pyramids, South America, Egypt, kind of based on the formation of these stars and stuff like that. So a lot of our like ingenuity, a lot of our modern development is in relation to just looking up at the sky and just seeing and like i guess mars would look like a star back then almost until we'd had the telescope but yeah dude like i i don't know there's a lot to say about space's influence on the human imagination and mm -hmm. desire to kind of learn more and you know even like biology like studying what you're studying you know and it's like you can take away what you're learning and what you're discovering and then implementing it into like, how can we further that into what's above us? And that's, it's crazy to think about a lot of things. Like when you think about like the development of people, like even as little kids, like, I don't know about you, but like I was always obsessed with like little rocks and stuff and finding cool looking rocks. And I find that like a lot of kids still have like an obsession with finding cool looking rocks. And then even like as adults and as we develop as a species, like our whole f fixation has been a lot on like f pulling stuff from the earth and like refining it or turning it into something useful. And that goes into like steel, you know, gunpowder, uh, and then eventually like uranium for like nuclear stuff. And it just seems to be like this driving force that's in our biology. It's kind of weird. It's sort of like, it's almost as ingrained in us as reproduction and like eating. I mean, that's kind of a bold statement to say, but human. And then you look at how our technology is developing today where we're constantly developing better and more cost effective stuff. And we're just like, you look at the, the internet, cell phones, computers, all that stuff over the past 10, 20, 30 years, it's leaping and bounding. And it kind of seems like, I don't know, or is there some sort of hardwiring in humans to like extract earth and refine it into like technology and then ultimately into this goal to like manifest into space? I, I don't know. That's a, it's kind of a, an extraordinary claim, but it's also very like it's a good thought experiment, I think, to think about. It's kind of like, what is it about DNA and like, I don't know for people at least like other living stuff on living organisms on earth don't really seem to be programmed that way it could just be like a sociological thing completely or cultural but um yeah i don't know I, i'm just fascinated by it yeah it could be too that you know we uh so rather it could just be uh, uh a manifestation of our resourcefulness which could be itself a, a product of our our intellect, which has been, you know, uh, one of the, I mean, there are different, there are different hypotheses on this, um, but our intellect as a species, our intellect has served us well. And, um, some believe has been selected for directly. Um, and the result being that we have become intelligent to the point that we have with, uh, yeah. you know, and that has resulted in you know, manifestation of things like consciousness, perhaps, although, again, different theories, depending on who you talk to about what, what exactly consciousness yeah, is. Yeah, that's a but, massive rabbit hole. 
It is, yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, but I think resourcefulness. I mean, we've been your example of we have this innate. Uh, 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 it seems like we have an innate uh, capacity to extract from the earth, refine whatever it is that we've extracted and put it to good use. It it's true. It could be related specifically to the earth, or it could just be that we are earthbound organisms for the most part. And those are the resources that are available to us. In fact, they're really some of the only resources that have been available to us for, for the longest time since before we were, you know, an airfaring and spacefaring civilization in particular. So it could just be that those were the elements that were available to us and being resourceful, we used them and put them and ended up putting them to use, uh, you know, and how it, um, how that ties in with our, 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 our future in space. I don't know, but it could be, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of evidence over the, 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 the evolution of our species that, there has been some portion, some percentage of our population at all times that has been, seems to be driven to explore. And that's not, you know, it's probably not the majority of people, but there is enough individuals that allow us, you know, the population to spread out slowly from, from where we first evolved. And, you know, we've reached a point in our, uh, uh, our, our spread across earth perhaps and perhaps more 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 relevantly we've reached a point where we can actually develop technology that can take us from this planet and into space and then maybe eventually to to mars hopefully you know humans will in our lifetime it would be awesome to see uh if that actually comes to fruition um but i don't know if it's a yeah, I don't it's... know if it's a destiny or if it's a fate. It's I don't know if I believe it's a destiny or fate thing so much as it's just a manifestation of the evolutionary path that our species has gone down or has uh, has uh, not taken, because I don't want to say it's it was a conscious choice of us to have gone down this evolutionary path, but the one that has been selected for by uh, natural selection. Have you heard the saying, I forget who's, who said it, but it's like we are like, the caterpillar giving birth to like the like technological butterfly or like the i don't know like ai i guess would be like the ultimate like development of technology or like agi um it's sort of like are we is technology our highest form of evolution like is that our like grand is that our kind of like grand track, like our ultimate, is that where we end up at as a species hmm. possibly, or, you know, I don't know. Yeah. That's interesting. You know? Uh, yeah. So let's, I don't know, but let's explore it here, Ian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, well, yeah. We don't have the answers. But... <laughs> so, so you're, I'm not sure who said that quote, but the idea of the metamorphosis of a, of a, caterpillar into a butterfly that's the same individual right so if we apply that idea to our species then what is the technology that we are metamorph that uh, uh metamorphosizing that that we are developing that will be 
an extension of ourselves such that it can be just like the butterfly is the same individual as the caterpillar. Yeah. The technology is an extension of us. And I, you know, you mentioned AGI, uh, AI and then eventual AGI, yeah. uh, that, you know, there is a, especially with the development of neural nets and things like this, that will, uh, perhaps connect our consciousness and our thoughts, our, our, our ability to interact with, uh, uh, the internet, um, that seems like a, like there's some there's some analogy in there somewhere with the butter with the with with the caterpillar and the yeah and the well, butterfly. So, I think AGI at least initially its total intelligence will just be like a collective sum of like all of humanity's knowledge, and then I guess it goes just goes from there and it takes goes the from reins. There. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, then who knows? Crushing <laughs> calculations and solving certain issues and complex equations and then it's who knows what it's doing after that what it's solving what it's doing um yeah i don't know it's fascinating to think about but then i also kind of turn it back in on itself and it's like if we were to make like a self-replicating robot that could go somewhere throughout the stars where we can't because i don't i'm not entirely sure we ever will be when you look at like the distances of these locations, I feel like anything, any kind of like manned crew, if we could do it by the time it reached its location because of um, relativity, like the earth would basically cease to exist or be like a very different place from when that first crew left. And it's hard to say whether, you know, it continues to um, exist in the same way. So would, the best um, solution be a technological organism or would it be a biological organism? You know, like maybe we're sending DNA on a substrate and, you know, that's how we're basically making these connections throughout the universe. Yeah, well, there are lots of people uh, who think that robotics, that robots are the best, are best served for this purpose, for space exploration partly for reasons that you say, partly for ethical reasons. Um, I guess the only thing, you know, we're talking interstellar distances. I agree that interstellar, it's hard to fathom. Like one needs to, it's a conscious effort to fathom what these distances are between even stars in our own arm of the Milky Way galaxy, let alone intergalactic distances, which are pretty much unfathomable. Like it's, they're just so huge and vast that the idea of humans, unless there is, you know, using anything that is remotely possible today, like um, propulsion technologies, it's just, it's not possible. It's not possible. Uh, It would have to, there would have to be the development of whole, which have been, you know, many, many smart people and writers have written about this in, 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 in various realms of science fiction and stuff about, you know, how one may traverse these distances. Um, But until the development of, you know, our, like our ability to, uh, to transit wormholes or whatever it may be, um, humans, it's just, it's, 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 
it's not practical. I don't think I don't think it's very practical. And so then robots, it's an easier perhaps it's an easier decision to send a robot or two. But then for what end? Like ideally they communicate like there's something in it for humanity in terms of what we learn or because the idea wouldn't just be to send them out there send them to what, but what's proxima the, centauri or but something here, so here's the thing what's the ultimate goal of humans colonizing different parts of the uh, solar system universe galaxy whatever what what's the ultimate goal of that what's the ultimate purpose of that well like so i guess if i can if your question was not what's the ultimate goal of colonizing, but what's the ultimate goal of exploring, then it could be, someone might say, to colonize, that the goal is to colonize, to find somewhere else to live. Uh, someone else may say that the, the goal of exploring is not colonization, but is to learn about our, our environment, our nat the natural environment in which, uh, you know, like I look around, my as a biologist, I look around, um, the environment around me on earth here and the living organisms that inhabit it and try and better understand them because I'm curious about them and not necessarily because I want to co-opt what they have evolved for my own good, uh, but just because I have an innate curiosity about, about those sorts of things. And it could be the same for those same reasons. And that has driven a lot of SpaceX, like a lot of uh, our exploration of space thus far has been yeah. purely curiosity driven. It's not been, you know, to find some source of some new source of raw materials for manufacturing or um, uh, or a potentially habitable environment that we can use as a, you know, as a backup hard drive. <laughs> and, I, I think and, it I think it might be also the preservation of life like it's sort of like into our like our core programming as a species to like kind of like procreate reproduce it's like we know that earth is finite and it's not going to last forever and we're seeing like you know we're seeing the end before it happens and we're just thinking okay so how do we prevent this how do we continue the species after earth and I think maybe that's a part of it. So some of it might be just to spread, like, I guess, human consciousness throughout the universe. But I think because of how, unless we can develop new technologies, wormhole, whatever it is, our propulsion, I think it might be like we we might have to defer it to or settling for something smaller and be like, okay potentially this over time will evolve into something akin to a human it'll take a very long time but if we send it everywhere at least then over time it you know maybe like a human subspecies or you know like a sovian or neanderthal you know like there's different ways something similar to a human can sort of take shape and maybe, mm. I don't know, maybe that's like sort of like the goal would be to like spread it that way. I don't know. I'm not sure. Like, I'm, Yeah, if I'm, the goal is to preserve some some aspect of. Yeah, I think that's a really narcissistic thing, though, <laughs> in, in my opinion, because it's, you know, like I do, I do, I, I guess there is part of me, uh, like I would be sad to know if for some reason I was given the information that all of 
all of humankind will be lost and everything that humankind had accomplished over its however many years of existence will be lost that's a sad idea and, is, huh? and i think i can see how that can motivate people to be like well let's let's try and avoid that then like if we can let's try and avoid it but if the answer to avoiding it is just blasting our you know our 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 uh, our genomes out <laughs> with you know it's not just the dna there needs to be dna is uh you know for i guess an analogy might be we if we blasted a hard drive out into space the data and we loaded we preloaded the hard drive with whatever data we wanted to 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 make known somewhere else in the universe there needs to be a power source yeah. wherever that landed, right? And so, the to stick with this analogy, there needs to be a, a mechanism uh, by which energy can be harnessed from the environment and used so as to replicate the DNA that was present on the, the wafer, whatever the, the craft was that had been blasted out into space. But let's assume that that's the case, okay? Um, which is non-trivial, that's a non-trivial assumption, but we'll assume it. Uh, it's I, it comes back to this idea of the ethics of doing something like this and especially if it's sort of a blind shot like we're just going to blast it somewhere towards maybe a star system now you know now we have this interesting information because of kepler and now james webb the, the these tele, these space telescopes that have revealed incredible information about like what may be possible in terms of other star systems harboring um life as we know it or environments that may be suitable for life as we know it and so i guess it wouldn't just be a blind shot but it would be aimed at at the very least somewhere where there might be a chance yeah they think it's like an earth earth like planet exactly or, yeah. in the goldilocks zone not too close not too far from its 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 star and you know all the different you know elements of the drake equation if you're familiar with the drake equation yeah uh, so it's you know it, it could be it could be um a targeted effort but it's still pretty you know i would it's still there this is a huge ethical quandary in my opinion and um, what right do we have especially if we are not the only uh uh, uh intelligent be... entities in the universe which is to say yeah. especially if the universe is not ours and ours alone which i believe to be the case that we are not that there are uh there are other intelligent uh, um, entities in the universe. It just seems like speaking statistically, it, it, yeah, I'm sure you agree the numbers, with numbers, yeah. Yeah. It, it, there is probably some, like, it, and if not intelligent, at least biologically living. Or like yeah, to you're right, yeah. Living. yeah. It doesn't even have, you're right. It doesn't even have to be intelligent. It just has to be, which is far, far more likely, like the rare earth hypothesis, which is that simple, you know, uh, um, for lack of a better phrase, simple life, like, something akin to uh, bacterial or microbial is quite prevalent in the universe but the evolution of intelligence is a rare thing and that may be the case uh, that's probably more likely to be the case but even if it was even if we were the only intelligent civilization in the universe but there were these other life forms akin to uh, uh, bacteria it's still not our universe and so to be blasting our our contents all over the universe with the hope of them seeding some other habitable environment and then proliferating there i think is it, 
I, I don't know if I'd be in favor of that. But yeah, there's a lot of variables. A lot of variables there, yeah, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, potential resonance for others that is hard to hard to predict at the outset, you know. But presumably, if anything like that were to happen, there'd be teams of people thinking about this. Teams far people far more intelligent than me and trying to ponder just what the ramifications to something like this might be. No. The other thing could be just, you know, doing something like going to a planet where, like Mars, where uh, as far as we know, there is currently no life there. And so um, it's also close. Uh, and it's, it's plausible that um, in certain ways that it could become habitable. Uh, and... That could potentially, you know, it won't it won't avoid the fate, the the ultimate fate of our species of, of our planet, which is to be engulfed by the sun, you know, because it will it, that that will get Mars too. Yeah, maybe it, a little later, perhaps, but it would inevitably get Mars too. But um, it would avoid certain fates that could uh, befall humanity on Earth, such as you know. Uh, an asteroid impact or something like that, um, which is sort of at the heart of when you hear Musk and SpaceX, you know, talk about this with respect to SpaceX's uh, the, the mission statement for for SpaceX. It's often in that what context. Do you, what do you think is more likely to happen first? That we terraform Mars, or we decide to start gene editing humans to make them more. Um, more like better able to survive the environments of mars sort of like a forced evolution mm -hmm. i mean right now that's ethically probably not going to happen but if we look hundreds of years into the future maybe even thousands and sort of like and humans continue on the same trajectory that they're on i feel like they may have the technology by then to sort of gene edit a human to different environments it seems very sci-fi to say something like that because there's not really a whole lot of groundwork for that. But we do have things like CRISPR sort of like being able to like select the eye color, hair color, you know, remove certain hereditary ailments. It's like how long down the road of, you know, do we start adding in things that aren't really unnatural to human like evolution? Yeah. And then how does that compare to terraforming? uh in terms of time yeah would it be easier scale? or harder and time well, scales like yeah i guess you know so part of me thinks we're we're already capable of gene editing like you say with crisp with the crispr cas9 system that can all and it is being used in certain contexts to edit uh the genomes of humans um and it's being refined in other organisms i think currently it's being used primarily for single gene it's, you know, to, to, to remedy yeah. single gene ailments. Yeah, uh, stuff they know. Of stuff they know that are, that are single, that involve single genes. I think when it comes to more complex phenotypes or traits that are, require the involvement of more than one gene, then that's going, that just makes the process more complex. But, you know, that's like, that's, we're already on, uh, the the advancement in that technology over the past 
10 years since, you know, the, the Doudna paper in 2012, it's, it's been incredible. And so I think that's going to continue to advance. The technology will continue to advance at a very high rate and probably just faster and faster as more people get on board and, and some results are more and more results of this technology in terms of how it can be used for good, um, become available. What may lag, uh, is the ethical, uh, you know, our obligations ethically to use this technology. So I think the technological development will, is, is developing at a high rate currently will continue to do so, but our, the way that we ethically, uh, employ this technology will, will slow the rate at which it's applied and, and, and reduce the number of, um, contexts in which it's used perhaps but we're on the way to doing it so i think that it's like we're the technological uh, uh capability to do it is is here so i to answer your question about gene editing versus terraforming um just because we can do it already i would guess gene editing terraform i mean i guess terraforming could be as simple as you know, sending a thermonuclear <laughs> warhead and blasting it over one of the poles. And that's the first thing we do. Exactly. And then just enriching <laughs> the environment with CO2. And that's all it would take. And we, we probably have that. Well, we have, we have, we have the thermonuclear uh, technology available to us. Um, and presumably it could be sent uh, into Martian orbit to do something like that. Again, there's, there are ethical considerations there. Yeah. But, uh, the thing that causes the destruction of Earth is what seeds life on Mars. Wouldn't that be ironic? I yeah, there's some, there's some deep, deep irony there. But I guess, you know, the thing is, and so to, to draw the link between these two, as you did at the beginning there, is can gene editing be used to make the human species more adapted to life on Mars? And... So it's not just gene editing you're talking about, but the application of gene editing with the goal of making us more capable of living a normal life on Mars as we know Mars to be right now without terraforming. And whether yeah. that will come quicker than terraforming Mars, um, I don't know. I guess it, uh, I think that there would be, we're at an early, a relatively early stage of our uh, the way the 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 ways in which CRISPR can be used and the types of uh, um, traits that it can alter, uh, like I said, mostly from what I understand, I don't use CRISPR, so I'm not an expert on this. But um, as a biologist, just understanding a little bit about how it works, it's being used uh, mostly for single gene yeah. uh, for it's editing its single genes it's exactly. Its and so once, um, but when it's scaled up to be used in more comp for more complex traits that are coded by various genes, like multiple genes, um, then, you know, I guess maybe sky's the limit. I don't well, know. You know, as an optimist, I'd say sure, but uh, there are some pretty major. Uh, breakthroughs that they would have to have yeah. before they can really the obstacles of life on mars without any sort of habitat yeah, you're already like thinking profound of, yeah because yeah. you're so, thinking of an organism that would have to like not breathe oxygen and that's not really found on earth 
So yeah, there'd have to be some element of terraforming, I think, to make it, to make, you know, life on Mars possible without life being lived primarily in a habitat or in yeah. a, a portable habitat like a, a, a spacesuit. But, um, you know, in that terraforming process, as far as I know, they reading, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson. Kim Stanley Robinson is that the author who wrote like Red Mars. Green Mars, Blue Mars. I don't know if you know those books, but uh, anyway, it's 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 a long it's a long process to terraform the planet. It seems like so. I guess to answer your question, I would guess gene editing, but we're still a long way from being able to edit to the genome too. such that yeah. That's why I said resulted. hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Because yeah, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting prospect to think about. The kind of, I don't know, I call it a thought experiment because it's sort of like a daydream to think about aspects and technologies that don't exist and if they can or ever will. And I don't know. I like, I like, uh, I like, I like having an imagination about that stuff. It's, I don't know. It's, well, I think it's useful. It's interesting and it's useful, right? Like it's, it's, it's good to, um, you know, people imagining stuff like this is probably where the seeds for a lot of important developments and uh ideas came from yeah <laughs> so, so so what's what what's your do you have like i think i already touched on this earlier but like what's your next big project or what's your overarching like do you have like something you really want to work on in the future that may not be happening right now but maybe one day you will yeah so i want to um I guess the short term, what I'm doing in the short term here is I'm working on a couple of projects. So uh, one of them is related to this study that was just the study that we just published in science that we've been talking about, about urea nitrogen salvage. And um, what we're going to be doing is looking at what the protein, what specific proteins within the hibernating animal are being synthesized with the help of this microbe dependent process so just to put that a little just quickly to put that in a bit of context the um the benefits that we saw of this nitrogen salvage process the benefits that we saw for the hibernators manifested in their ability to synthesize new protein during the hibernation season when they were not eating which means not taking in a source of nitrogen which is the key uh, atomic building block in proteins and they were not uh, exercising which meant that their their muscles in particular were prone to wasting and so we found that this process of urea nitrogen salvage which uses their gut microbes it's a gut microbe dependent process uh, to salvage the nitrogen that's present in the urea molecule which usually gets peed out yeah. In this case, it gets shifted into the intestines where it's in the presence of certain microbial species that can break that urea into its component parts, liberate that nitrogen, and then that nitrogen can be absorbed and then used by the hibernator uh, to build new protein when they don't have any other source of nitrogen. So it's a really, it's a really elegant uh, system for you know, um, making use of what is usually a waste product. So what we want to find, we found in this study that that nitrogen is being, that urea-derived nitrogen is being used to build new proteins. But we didn't know, and we don't yet know, which proteins 
in particular, it's being used to build so that's in the, the next tissues. Step. So that's the next step. Yeah. And that's and the reason this is interesting. So this, this is work that uh, will be funded by the Canadian Space Agency. And one of the, the, the space flight angle on this or why it's relevant to space flight is because we've, we've known since like we've known since the sixties that, uh, space being in the microgravity environment of space reduces, uh, load on the muscles. So the amount that muscles exercise, um, yeah. because we're usually always like you and I, uh, where we are right now, our, our postural muscles are fighting against gravity to keep us sitting or standing. Um, and when one's in, a microgravity or zero gravity environment, that constant load is not acting on the muscles. And so muscles quickly atrophy. And that's why astronauts and cosmonauts, spaceflight crew members need to exercise so intensively while they're in space is to reduce the rate at which their muscles shrink. So one, one of the reasons the muscles shrink is because um, the synthesis of new protein is slowed. The rates at which new proteins are built in the muscles are reduced in space. And we actually know, based on proteomic studies, which proteins in particular are reduced. There's, there's, there's many of them, but there's essentially a list that we can look at based on studies that have been conducted aboard the International Space Station. And so what, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, well, what proteins is this process that we're seeing in the hibernators, which is a sort of similar metabol or a similar um, state in not metabolic state but a similar state in terms of a lack of activity leading to muscle wasting uh what proteins is this urea nitrogen salvage being used to build in the hibernators because if there's an overlap between the proteins that this process is facilitating the synthesis of in hibernators and the proteins that are being lost or not synthesized during space flight then it gives uh, some, some, it provides further evidence that this, this, this uh, whole process of urea nitrogen salvage could be potentially beneficial as a, as a countermeasure to microgravity in space uh, and help the synthesis of proteins that are usually not synthesized during space flight. Yeah, that would be huge. <clears throat> yeah, so that's, that's a... I'm excited. I'm excited to do this project. Yeah, that, it's it's super cool that it's being funded by the you know Canadian Space Program, but um, how, how do you see it being uh, in the future? What possible applications do you think? Like, how could it be used on people? Do you see it as like sort of like an injection, maybe of like these proteins? Maybe it'll be, I don't know, something you drink. Will it be? Will it require something else? Like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Do you? Or is that too far down the road? No, 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 we can. I mean, I don't. Uh, it's 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 probably too early to say with certainty, but it's uh, we can talk about what it might look like. Um, so, <clears throat> like I said, this is a this is a gut microbe dependent process yeah. uh, because it requires. Um, so that urea that that in in. In, in my research case, the squirrels are producing, but in our case, we produce urea as well as the main yeah. components in our urine. Uh, animals or vertebrates do not have, um, are not able to produce an enzyme called urease, which is the, uh, the tool that breaks urea into its component parts. So none of us have the, the genes for it. No, no, no squirrel, no human, okay. but the microbe, certain microbial species do have 
the genes to build this urease enzyme, which, like I said, can split urea into its component parts. So uh, the simplest way that this could possibly work is to seed the gut microbiome of humans, like spaceflight crew members, for example, with some of these microbial species so as to increase the number of microbes in their intestines that are capable of breaking urea into its component parts. And then once you break it into its component parts, that nitrogen is free to be absorbed and then used to potentially used to synthesize uh, new proteins. So it could be as simple as um, uh, what is essentially a probiotic or a prebiotic mm -hmm. treatment for humans. Now, it's very likely to be far more complex than that, just for a couple of reasons. First is the, 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 the microbial environment of the intestines is highly complex. And so it's really, it's not as easy as just dumping in a new player into that environment and expecting everything to be fine after that. There right. is often, yeah, there are often downstream con or, uh, um, effects that may have negative consequences on gastrointestinal health or inflammation or something like that. So, of course, that needs to be, this, is a, uh, this would have to be tested step by step to make sure that this could be done in a safe, in a safe way. The second thing is this process of urea nitrogen salvage, although it really does rely on these gut microbes, it involves four or five other really important steps. And so if for some reason humans were incapable of any of those other steps, then we could load, in theory, we could load the intestines with as many of these ureolytic microbes, they're called, uh, as, as we wanted, and there would be no actual urea nitrogen salvage because the, 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 the mechanisms or the architecture for these other steps are not present. So we have to have each of these different steps for this whole process to actually work and result in the synthesis of new proteins using this urea nitrogen. But yeah. what's, what's encouraging is there are studies um, that were done in the 90s that show that humans are capable of urea nitrogen salvage under certain conditions. It's, it's, it's not as, as, uh, as effective or as prominent as it is in the hibernating mammals that we look at, but it is, it looks like we are capable of doing it, which oh, suggests that we have, yeah, which suggests that we have the architecture uh, or the machinery yeah. in place at these different steps. It may just need to be optimized. So yes. we may need to go in there, understand how these hibernators are doing this um, uh, themselves naturally. And then with that information, we can potentially optimize uh, how we're using this process and particularly under certain situations such as space flight or under conditions of, for example, on earth, like um, conditions of undernourishment, a hallmark of which is low amounts of dietary nitrogen, for example, or long periods of bed rest, which is similar to hibernation and space flight in that muscles atrophy pretty quickly when, when one is confined to a, a hospital bed because of a coma or what have you. So um, if we can understand these mechanisms that allow the hibernators at each of these different steps to increase the rate that they use this, which they do, that was one of the things we found is that unlike most processes in hibernation, this one actually increases over the hibernation season. So they amplify their ability to use it. And if we can understand how they amplify 
their ability to, to do it, then we may be able to translate some of those mechanisms to human and to humans and amplify our own abilities to use it. It's fascinating that it's in basically that that study in the seventies confirms more or less that it's at least within the human genome that, you know, that nitrogen salvage. So it's, I feel like it's a good indicator to feed, like it's a good indicator in that we will be positively responsive to this technique. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, you know, as long as we take it step by step and, you know, before we won't just be, you know, going straight, we wouldn't just be going straight to humans with this. We'd be trying it in other animals that have yeah. similar gastrointestinal architectures as we have, uh, for example, and um, taking it step by step. But it is, I do see this as, as a, as plausible and yeah, as it's plausible it's not as, like we're trying to teach us how to like photosynthesize or something exactly exactly yeah, yeah. and i think that um uh you know it will be the question will be not whether not so much whether we are capable of this but just how beneficial it will be to those situations that i said so space flight for example or to um, bed rest or to undernourishment yeah just how there's a ton of applications now that i'm thinking about it yeah Yeah. and i i think these applic these earthbound you know a lot of people over the past few weeks when i've been uh, talking to people about this since the study was published people are very interested in the spaceflight applications which (laughs) like i i totally understand and 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 i'm a huge well as, as as you can see here i'm a biologist but i'm also a big space enthusiast but um i if i were to bet or if i were to guess it would be if if this if this technology is developed and translated to humans, it will be for reasons like the dri- the primary drivers will be earthbound reasons. It's application to earthbound problems such as uh, undernourishment or, or bed rest before spaceflight. Correct. Partly because there's just so many more people who are affected by. Uh, by these by undernourishment and, and bed rest another one sarcopenia actually which affects all of us as we age like the gradual muscle wasting that sets in after 40 around 40 years of age yeah um, so it just affects all of us and if you compare that to the relatively few number of people who are in space at any given time it's like just a numbers game it's like well most the benefits there seems to be higher return on investment by applying this to earthbound situations yeah that's where the revenue will come from the fund the more extravagant things exactly and because it's just it will be invariably more difficult just like everything is to execute this process in the environment of a spacecraft especially if it's a spacecraft you know in transit to mars or something that's relatively isolated like something aboard the iss that's relatively close you know and in an emergency situation um People can be, it's, you know, it's a different thing than one is in deep space yeah. and uh, with, you know, on, on a nine month journey towards, uh, towards Mars, for example. Like, I think of quality of life for people with cancer, like they, they'll see, you know, a deterioration of their muscle mass because, you know, more prone to being bread ridden and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, cancer is a very pervasive thing. It's like the number one killer 
in Canada and to have like sort of like that used as a quality of life treatment you know while they're going through stuff like radiation or chemo to sort of keep their muscles if it, it you know there's a lot of other variables before you know I'm I'm jumping to conclusions here but you know I've, I'm seeing a lot of positives to this sort of the work you're doing like just like thinking off the top of my head a bunch of different things I could I can also possibly see maybe military applications depending on now what if you don't need to protect against like atrophy what if you're fully fit and it's like it ends up being a way to make people stronger like increases muscle mass like maybe something similar to like how like anabolic steroids function on humans and then you're using that to i don't know benefit like soldier durability or something or yeah. yeah there's there's a whole bunch of different i like the word spirals from yeah yeah and i think like uh um as i was mentioning that that discovery pipeline earlier we're still at this discovery of a natural phenomenon end of the pipeline and i think at this you know as we move towards any potential application of this it's going to be important to understand whether or not uh whether or not this actually has the potential to be useful in those different situations. And um, I'm excited for that. You know, like that's at the heart of this, 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 this grant with the Canadian Space Agency is to understand, okay, let's take a first step. In theory, this could potentially benefit uh, uh, muscle protein synthesis in microgravity. But it's just, a the- it's just theoretical at this point. So yeah. let's take a step towards you know, uh, accumulating some evidence to suggest, oh no, it, it, it actually might because there's this overlap of proteins that seem to be uh, benefited by this system or this process, which are uh, not synthesized in the spaceflight environment, for example. I, and I think equally important will be to determine relatively early on in this process whether it's not beneficial, whether it's not likely to be beneficial so that there is minimal time and energy and resources put towards something that ultimately will not prove to be useful. So that's sort of uh, the other side of the coin when I'm thinking about how I might um, develop projects to, to explore the potential translational, the translational potential for this system. It's, you know, be mindful of not just indicators of its potential benefits, but also indicators of its potential, uh, the opposite, like uselessness towards certain applications so that we don't waste time and money on something. Correct. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I guess, you know, we've been talking for over an hour now. I think it's good time to wind it down unless you uh, have like a couple things you just wanted to get out there before we shut her down uh no i well i guess so i i think at one point i mentioned i wanted to return to homeostasis yeah 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 so just just you know you can choose whether to include this or not but so 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 homeostasis homeo um correct me if i'm wrong but how i interpreted your use of homeostasis was something uh equivalent to a state of metabolic depression i I Uh, thought it was like a state beyond that yeah so it's a state that is I was like, sort of using them interchangeably, but I, what I meant was, um, 
so metabolic depression was like stage one and then like the next like back like obviously at some point if you want to get the space travel you'd probably need something more than that to go vast distances so that would be like homeostasis which is okay yeah yeah sorry yeah i wasn't clear on that but no but, that's okay so so what so what homeostasis um a more refined uh way to look at homeostasis is it's just a stable it's the maintenance of a stable environment within a living organism particularly particularly within the cells of a living organism um and it is essential for life like and by that i mean once cells start to drift away from homeostasis so for example once they're once once ion concentrations within the cells which are very tightly regulated very highly controlled once they start to drift away from that homeostatic level then certain processes certain biochemical processes within the cells are no longer able to function and yeah. once critical functions within the cells are no longer able to work properly then the cell dies and then ultimately the organism dies so this idea of maintaining a stable environment which is what homeostasis is is essential for life and it's where virtually all of the energy that we uh, uh, that we obtain from our environment and then convert and then use in our cells it goes towards maintaining this stable environment so that uh, everything can function properly. And what's interesting, how this ties in with metabolic depression is, um, this is a highly energetically expensive process to maintain homeostasis. So when an animal lowers its metabolic rate by a vast degree, like a hibernator or like the tardigrades we talked about earlier, the it's just such an incredible feat that it is able to maintain that homeostatic environment within its cells even when it's not uh, using much energy to do so the fact that its metabolic rate for example is lowered by 99 percent in hibernators means that it's using 99 percent less energy which is helpful because when there's no food to be eaten it means it can go you know that proportionately longer without without eating food because it doesn't need the energy but to maintain homeostasis under those conditions of low energy use is uh, is truly remarkable, and it's one of the reasons why we can humans cannot enter these metabolically states, uh, these these metabolic states naturally, because um, we are unable if our if our use of energy falls off anywhere close to something like that, our cells are not able to maintain a state of homeostasis, and then they die, and then once certain critical tissues start dying and organ systems start dying then the organism itself dies and so what makes a uh, what separates a, a usable and effective metabolic state of metabolic depression from one that is not and is really just a, a slow cascade towards death is this ability to maintain homeostasis the whole way down and then the whole way back up to normal metabolic rate if you know what i mean is do you think like a big contributor to that might be our brains and that maybe it's like even like our consciousness and perhaps like we because we would be dreaming or um our brain function is just so high and uses so much energy and mm -hmm. calories maybe in comparison to a squirrel or a bear that it's it wouldn't be like maybe, maybe wouldn't sustain it or something yeah, well, so if you look at the total, you know, the total amount of energy in a 
in an organism, like in a squirrel, for example, that is being consumed by, uh, or let's take a human, that's being consumed by the brain or the nervous system in general. There's a huge, you know, it depends on the activity that the person's currently doing, but a huge percentage goes to supporting the function of the nervous system, central and peripheral nervous system. And our, I, I'm, I'm not, I can't recall the ratios of, uh, uh, of the nervous system relative to, you know, the mass of the nervous system uh, relative to the mass of the body in general. I, or in total, I would guess that it's higher in humans than it is in squirrels. But even in squirrels, a significant portion of the energy that they use on a daily basis goes towards supporting their the function of their nervous system as well. So that is something that needs to be dialed down uh, considerably yeah. to save energy because just dialing that down on its own can save a significant amount of energy. But the, the, problem, with the, the problem with that is the, the central nervous system is like the central, it's the processing uh, facility for, for basically everything in the body. So there are certain regions of, of the brain that need to keep functioning so as to sustain life even in that deeply depressed metabolic state. And what's interesting, I was talking earlier about, um, about this idea of when you mentioned convergent evolution, and I talked about how I'd like to harness this idea of convergent evolution to illuminate fundamental principles of metabolic depression in different groups of animals that have independently evolved the ability to, to induce metabolic depression. And so looking across different animals that do do this, if turtles are freshwater turtles are capable of deep states of metabolic depression um and so are certain species of fish and it's known from studies that at the neurological level they they employ different strategies so the turtle basically shuts off it's 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 uh it's it goes into a coma a a coma like state where it's pretty it's completely unresponsive to external stimuli uh, for the most part, um, appears dead. It appears dead, yeah, and it's it's uh, uh, unresponsive. Whereas the fish, which lowers its metabolic rate um, to approximately the same level, maybe not quite as low as the turtle, but uh, it stays um, responsive. It's not as responsive as it is when it's when it's at its normal metabolic rate. Certain processes shut down, but it is for the most part uh, responsive to external stimuli. And so it shows that, you know, this ability to all else being equal, if there's differences in the, 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 uh, um, in the neural, the, the roles that the nervous systems play in these two states of metabolic depression and in the, um, you know, potential for cognition, if thinking about how this might be adapted to humans, what sort of cognitive state humans may need to be, uh, may, may find themselves in. If in, if put in a uh, an induced state of metabolic depression, but yeah. you know there's nothing saying that a human if if this is, if this is ever applied to humans and you know the induction of deep states of meta, or states of metabolic depression there's nothing saying it needs to be like so profoundly depressed at like the hibernator ninety nine percent level even depressing metabolic rate by twenty or thirty percent which is far more feasible and likely to be far more uh, 
far less likely to cause irreversible damage to organ systems. Even that relatively modest state of metabolic depression can be uh, hugely beneficial in certain biomedical scenarios and even in spaceflight scenarios. So there's nothing saying that to do to apply this to humans that it needs to be at this really profound yeah, level. It doesn't, it can, yeah, it doesn't it, have to be at the top of it. It could even just be like a small margin. Exactly. Just yeah. whatever makes it. I guess there would have to be studies done to see, you know, what's the the gain for certain percentages of it. Exactly, like yeah. cost benefit analysis. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. 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 I I love it, man. I love the research you're doing. Uh, I love that it's getting attention. I think it maybe deserves a little bit more. It's <laughs> like the podcast, but uh, it's fascinating. Like obviously the romantic stuff about it is space. That's like the, the stuff we like to uh, imagine about dream about, but then uh, the, the practical applications for, you know, earthbound stuff, that's super important. And it's going to probably reduce the amount of suffering in the world by like a significant amount you know any kind even if it's a tiny bit like you know just making someone's quality of life a little bit better or if it's you know reducing or increasing somebody's lifespan maybe a slightly bit longer uh, it reduces a little bit more suffering that people go through right and that's unavoidable but it's a it's a good thing you're doing and i'm i'm happy that you're doing it no that's very very kind of you to say and thank you very much for that i'm 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 glad that you're interested in it and that uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to chat with you today. I, I appreciate you coming on the show. Like, thank you for uh, doing this. You didn't have to. And uh, yeah, I'm forever grateful that you have. Uh, yeah. I guess all. It's been, all right. it's, been, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to doing it maybe sometime in the future when you have more more to talk about in regards to your work and research. All right, I will happily do so. I will happily do so. Okay, sure.